If you make your way in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Robert Peterson was born in the 1920s. His mom and dad couldn't afford to care for him, so they turned him over to a farmer to work the land as best as he could at age six. He was disconnected from family from that time. He survived the Great Depression, and eventually when World War II came on the scene, he readily joined the war on the European front. When I asked him about the war, there's a time in my life, the desert storm, that I was troubled. I said, how did you you get through it? He said, well, you just, you survive it, you take what's given to you. One time he, he was telling me he unknowingly surprised an enemy ambush, supposed to be an ambush, and he accidentally walked in from the, the correct side, it was blindsided, the ambush, And they put up their hands and surrendered their guns, and he marched them to his superior and received a medal. He said, well, that's how it works. It's just happened to be there at the right place at the right time, and as if it's appointed. After Grandpa died, my uncle and my dad took me to the town that they were raised. See, for my grandfather not having a family, he did raise a family. And my uncle would tell stories I'd be looking at a house that was all boarded up. I mean, it was in shambles. But he would tell stories of celebration, life, love, sorrow, pain, joy. He'd go to this park, and the park wasn't the same, or this building, and this building wasn't the same. The town had been changed drastically. And I realized, as you're looking at that, that it's family that lasts, and the things that we build don't. I couldn't help but think that family survives through sacrifice. A man and woman, they sacrifice their individual lives to one another in marriage. A mother and father sacrifice their ambitions and plans to raise their children. Homes, neighborhoods, parks, jobs, friends, they fade away and they're replaced by other generations' buildings. Pastor Pat is in Israel. You go to old Europe or Israel and you, you see a testimony of that. Civilization upon civilization, upon civilization. But somehow, human beings still walking on top of it all. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit gives us such a picture. You see, for believers, they have just moved out of the Mosaic Covenant, which had given buildings, pictures, and portraits of salvation in Christ. The temple, priestly, Robes that were beautiful, incense that smelled amazing. Even the lamb, while we think of bloodletting that lamb at the same time, was grilled. And you know the smell of grilled meat. Incense, fragrance, an amazing temple, family celebrations, festivals, feasts, jobs, careers revolved around this place. And for believers to realize that Christ is the substance that that these things were pictures of heavenly realities, a real heaven, a real relationship with God. It became very difficult. You can imagine being cut off from family. You can imagine having a hole in your heart, places that you filled with building, feasts, festivals, and now you were trusting in something unseen, something invisible. You were trusting in the promise of God that Christ, who's now risen, 500 witnesses saw him, 
But he rose and he ascended and he's at the Father's right hand. Where is he? So they need to be encouraged. And not only that, but their believers were being oppressed. They were going through persecution and suffering. Imagine the loss of jobs. Imagine the loss of family. And for some reason, the culture hates Christianity. It's a threat to authority. It's a threat to the government. It's a threat to idolatrous worship. It's a threat to the commerce. And so believers were suffering for something they could not see. They had to see by faith through the promise of God's word. And so that's the context is what is going to last. What's real? Is it the buildings that we build or is it the promise of God? If you could imagine an iceberg, the fish floating down below and all they see is the darkness of the root of that iceberg penetrating the sea, but they could not see the life teeming above. That's what believers were given. All they could see is the bottom side of heaven, the earthbound view. And what they saw was Christ suffering. They saw the church suffering. They saw Christians suffering. And by faith through God's word and promise, they had to believe the heavenly things, that those were eternal and true and right and good. They had to cling to it. I mean, think what the world was left with other than the 500 witnesses. This is Christ dying as a criminal on the cross. That's the worldview, a view from under heaven. And so in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, through the Hebrew writer, is commending us to look to Jesus. And we see that over and over again. Consider him. It says Moses considered Christ. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise the dead. Hebrews 3.1 says, you share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. We've come to share in Christ. We must pay much closer attention. With the eyes of faith, look to Christ. Why would we look to Christ? Because Christ is God's highest and greatest, grandest gift to us sinners. And so Hebrews 1, all the way through Hebrews 10, tells us about the resume of Jesus Christ so that we can consider him. We don't have time to look at every passage. What I'm doing is working from Hebrews and then we're going to, uh, the, the broad, and then we're going to focus in on chapter 11 and 12. But just listen. Who is this Jesus? Well, God has given himself to you in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. God has given himself to you in Christ. That's mind-boggling. God has given the world to come to you in Jesus. Christ is the creator. He laid the foundation of the earth, and he will dissolve it and create a new heavens and new earth. He's given angels to you in Jesus. Hebrews 1.14 says they're all ministering spirits to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. He has given his family identity to you in Jesus. We're called sons to glory. He's given his house, his household to you in Jesus. Christ is faithful over God's house and we are his house, Hebrews 3.6. He's given rest to you in Jesus. Eternal rest in Christ. Hope of heaven, hope of fellowship with him for all eternity. No suffering, no pain to come. He's given you heaven's throne of grace. It was pictured in the tabernacle and temple as the most holy place that the high priest could only enter once a year. That was the highest throne. You say, what about the king's throne? Well, this was the center of Israel. The king got his commission and his word 
from the covenant, which was centered in the most holy place. This throne of grace is the highest throne. And we've been given that in Jesus Christ. Complete access to God to pray and to bear our burdens and our needs and weaknesses and our sufferings, knowing that he loves and cares because he got into the mess in Christ. God has given you salvation to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the end. If you worry about your sin and guilt and shame, Christ has borne it. He satisfied justice. He has given you his presence. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, things that can be touched, but into heaven itself, into the presence of God on our behalf, God's presence. And then he's given you his fulfillment For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are set apart for the Lord, he has perfected, complete, finished. And so we go to Hebrews 10, 19. If you make your way there, notice as he sums it up and leads us into chapter 11 and 12. Hebrews 10, 19. So we've been given Christ. We've been given everything. The believer in the midst of suffering and weakness, temptations of earthly buildings, is to look by faith at the promise of God in Christ. If you've been given Christ, you have everything. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, it's the heavenly way, not the earthly, not the buildings that pass away, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's summarizing all that he's laid out before us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. We need to be reminded. So he commends to our hearts the the ministry of stirring one another's hearts at the greatness of Christ, lest we forget, lest we look at the buildings that are passing away and think, this is it. This is my life. He commends Christ. So with that in mind, if you go to Hebrews 12, we're going to look at verse 2, and that'll set the tone for us. We're going to see three heavenly, three heavenly considerations. You're not going to see them from below. Sorry, the bottom of the iceberg is pretty dark. We see a suffering and weakness, frailty, death. You're going to have to see with the eyes of faith through the promise of God's word. He's got the, he's got the heavenly angle. So we're trusting his view. And he gives us, in chapter 12, three heavenly considerations regarding God's provisions for you in Christ. And they are actually meant to strengthen us. If you would look at chapter 12, verse 3, Well, I want you to see the first looking. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. Remember, that's his theme. Consider Jesus. See him with the eyes of faith through the promise of his word. That's God's lens. Verse 3, consider him. In the end of verse 3, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's the point. In the midst of weakness and frailty and suffering and persecution, these things that the Lord allows to pass through his hands to try to grow, as we're going to see, train us, it's that we may not grow weary and faint-hearted, that we would consider Christ and look at him and be encouraged. And we're going to draw from some examples in chapter 11 
of weakness. But I want you to again see this theme. Look at verse 34 of chapter 11. So back up just a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 34. This is one of those lenses as you're looking at the scripture that helps to interpret the context. That's why we're looking at it through the lens of suffering and weakness. Verse 34, chapter 11. He goes through a list of believers of old. But all those believers are marked by this characteristic. They were made strong out of weakness. Do you see that there? Verse 34. They were made strong out of weakness. That's the context that we go through as believers. Strength out of weakness. And that strength is going to come from the promises of God in Christ. We want strength to get up and over the weakness, to overcome the weakness, to get out of the weakness. And his, his plan is to supply the encouragement, the promises in the weakness so that we can see the great glory of Christ and the world can see that too. Now, the first consideration is this, the certainty of Christ's perfect work. It's a victorious, perfect work. Uh, look at verse 2 with me again. We're going to focus there. Uh, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Christ's perfect work. Consider his victorious work. Well, what are we to consider here? Well, notice he says looking to Jesus. The idea is it's continual. We'll need to keep looking to Jesus because we're in the midst of weakness. We're in the midst of a suffering world and the Lord has deemed to shine the light of the glory of Christ in the midst of that suffering. And so we'll need to continue, the idea is, to habitually look to Jesus, to see his worth, his value, to meet our need. Notice we're to consider Jesus, the, the person of Jesus. And for that, what we would do, and we've done it already, is we've looked through the resume of Jesus. Who is he? He's God. He's greater than angels. He gives us rest. Our rest is in him. Our hope is in him. He's the creator. He's the, he's the Lord. He has an amazing resume. Consider the work of Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, founder has the idea of source. That is, he's the ruler. That is, he's the source and author and ruler of our salvation. He's the object of our faith, our trust. But notice how he describes this. How, how did he found, ground our faith? He says there, uh, who for the joy that was set before him, you see this in verse 2, endured the cross. The cross is where Christ met the curse of the law. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone. This is what the law says. Cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. So at the cross, he bore the curse of our sins against God, our trespasses, our breaking of the law. It's there at the cross that he fulfilled the curse as the servant. He absorbed the wrath of God. He met justice and therefore is the foundation of our salvation. But he doesn't stop there. He also says the perfecter. He's the completion is the idea, the finality. He's the anchor, the source, the foundation, but he's also the completion. And notice the description given in verse 2. Not only did he endure the cross, but he also, I love this, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been raised. He's at an exalted position at God's right hand. So Christ, as a lowly servant, went to the cross 
to pay the curse, the debt of our sins, the violation of God's law became the foundation of our salvation, the object of our trust. And as exalted king at God's right hand, he has completed our salvation. And so he grants the blessings of the law fulfilled. He fulfilled it. He's been raised and vindicated. So we've seen to consider Jesus' person, to consider his work, the foundation and completion, the cross in God's right hand, but also his disposition. His disposition is meant to encourage us. How could the high exalted one, the eternal son, stoop so low to be born in a dark mother's womb? As Psalm 22 said, to feed from mother's breast, he was trusting in the Lord. Why? Why would he stoop so low to take shame, our shame, the one who should be exalted and glorified, to take our guilt, imputed to him, reckoned to him, and with it, our shame. Why would he stoop so low? What was his disposition? It says there in verse 2, he despised the shame. If you think of a metaphor, think of soiled clothes of failure. It's often we view others as they look at us in, in the midst of our failure. Hopeless. I'm just a failure. We're ashamed in light of that shame. There's different kinds of shame. There's a victim shame in which somebody brings us into their guilt by sinning against us and we're wrapped into that mess. And oftentimes the victim's shame can view themselves in light of the guilty one and confuse that. I see that a lot with uh, counseling with those who cut themselves. Pain, penance, relieving the pain and stress and shame that others have sinned against them. There's personal shame soiled by the guilt of self. I've, I've disobeyed the law of God, disobeyed the laws of man. And there's representative shame, which Jesus took. It was reckoned to him. And pictured in his hanging on the cross in nakedness, exposed, soiled, and stained before the judging gaze of his creatures. The world would only see weakness and failure, foolishness and despicableness, horribleness, a deplorableness. So what got him through that? It says, for the joy set before him. Now you just, again, think of all these promises given to us in Christ the joy of rest, the joy of a finished, completed work, the joy of uh, sitting at God's right hand. In fact, if you just take this statement, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that helps us understand the joy. He would be reunited with God as our savior from the cross to exaltation. He would sit down. That would be the joy of completion, completing our salvation. There's a rest in that he sat down from his labors as our savior. There is sovereignty that he sat down at God's right hand the sovereign Lord, the one who, as king of our salvation, grants the Holy Spirit to awaken our eyes to see Christ and gives us the promises that we're declared righteous with God, that we're adopted as his children, that we're reconciled, that we're redeemed and our sins have paid for. These all come from the blessings of our king who sat down. And honor, to be at God's right hand, is a place of honor. say, well, why does he need to do that? I mean, he's God. Well, he's the human nature that he took to himself. He's now exalted that on our behalf as our representative so that we would follow him, so that God would look at us in Christ and see us in our representative, our champion, Jesus. What got him through is the joy set before him, the joy. 
So we're meant to consider Jesus, who considered the joy of the fulfillment of salvation and rest and honor at God's right hand. So too, we consider that God has given us his best, his highest in his own son, whom he loves with an eternal love. And this is to make us strong in the midst of our weakness. Now, by way of example, what I want to do is step back and just glean a little bit from Hebrews 11, because I want you to see that this is not new. You know, we, we uh, get this picture that Christians are supposed to be these perfect little angels, and we don't sin, and we don't struggle with sin, and if you struggle with sin, something's wrong with you. That is not what Hebrews 11 tells us about these people of faith. I want you just to see a picture of it, but before we do, look at verse 39 and 40 of Hebrews 11. The Old Testament saints are looking for promises. They're looking to the promise of Christ. It says, and all these, Hebrews eleven thirty nine, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And what was promised is Christ. They looked for the promise, but they hadn't, re- they, they don't have our benefit of having been post after the completed work of Jesus Christ. They're looking at shadows and types and pictures in the Old Testament that Christ would do these things, but they didn't get the benefit of being on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the church this side of the 500 witnesses that saw the resurrection of Christ. So they're looking at it by promise. And what does he say there? They did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that's us, the church, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The point being is Christ came at the perfect time. This was the best. It's not the types and pictures of the Old Testament. Christ is the substance. And he would save us, the church, And in so doing, that is when he would bring that realization to all these Old Testament saints who were looking at it through shadows and types, through promise. He was waiting until the time when Christ would come to bring the one body of all believers of all ages. So the point I wanted you to see is that they're looking by promise to Christ. Now you may have a hard time believing that, so maybe you need to step back a little bit. And take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 26. And notice Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He had the promise in Genesis 3.15 that a Messiah would come and would crush the serpent's head. He understood the types and pictures, and he's looking to Christ by promise. So what we're commending here is that all these believers, the hallmark of their faith is they looked to Christ. They were looking to the promise of Christ, yes, in types and shadows. But notice their own lives are a mess. It's the promise that is the treasure. Okay, so let's look at their life as a mess. Look, verse 23, and we're going to have to really quickly just pull these out just by ways of example. They were encouraged in their weakness. That's the point. They were failures. They were guilt and their shame by trusting in, in the promise of Christ. So verse 23, you got Moses' Parents who hid Moses for three months. It says they were not afraid of the king's edict. That is his command, Pharaoh's command, to kill all the firstborn children. And they saw the child was beautiful. If you trace that word beautiful, it has the idea of being graced of God. It wasn't just that, whoa, this child's beautiful. No, this child is God's favor. This child is a child of God's promise. And so they clung to the promise of God rather than the king's command. That's what encouraged them. Moses In verse 24 and 25, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was adopted and brought in to the Egyptian 
family, not just the family, but the throne as the, the king's daughter's son, which would involve a lot of worldly pleasures and sinful pleasures. And he decided, he chose by the promise of God to identify with the people of God rather than this position of wealth, authority, prestige, and power. What did he cling to? The promise of Christ. In verse 26 and 27, he considered the reproach of Christ, the shame of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Verse 27, by faith he he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he looked at the heavenly realities, the heavenly promises, and disregarded the earthly buildings. And they were alluring in the midst of weakness, trusting in the promises of God in Christ. Now we turn to another set, and that's Israel. We see Israel trusting in God's promise. And for this is a picture of God immersing them in, in the hand of judgment, but in judgment, delivering them. So they're, they're placed into this very difficult position in which they're going to have to trust the Lord to deliver them while God is bringing judgment on their persecutors, the Egyptian masters. So in verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover, referring to Moses, and sprinkled the bloods so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That would be Israel. Here they are. They're going to have to trust the promise of God. The angel of judgment is coming over. And they're trusting that this Passover lamb that was sacrificed, the blood that was poured out on that home, the doorposts, that pointed forward to Christ, the blood being offered for us, that they would be protected. Deuteronomy 32 reminds us that God hovered over them like a hen hovers over her chicks, protecting while judgment was brought on the land. They would have to trust God in his promise. The Red Sea in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. They're going to enter the sea, the same sea that's going to crush Pharaoh and his army. And they're going to trust that God is going to protect them in the midst of that. Jericho, verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. God gives them an odd command just to walk around Jericho. Do circles around it and say nothing. Be silent and blow trumpets. And the ark of the Lord, the ark of his presence would go before them. And on the final day they would shout. So God was declaring this was his victory. You were going to shout in celebration and God would bring the conquest. They were going to trust God and look like fools. So that God could be glorified. Rahab in verse 31. She's called the prostitute. What's her resume? She's a harlot. She's in the midst of Jericho. She did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You remember this story. She's protected the spies of Israel. She's trusted in the promise of God in Christ. She knew that the people of Israel were God's people and that through them the Messiah would come. So she identified with them and God says, Stay. <laughs> Stay? Uh, Can I, like, take my family and leave? Nope. You're going to stay while the judgment is going to be brought down on Jericho. And you're going to trust the Lord that he will deliver in the midst of judgment. Verse 32. What more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon? Gideon, he he believed God's promise, but he had weak faith. Barak, he, he was not a man's man. He was not a leader. He hid behind Deborah. Samson, you know him. He was treacherous. He was a liar. 
he was tempted. Jephthah, he was born of a prostitute, lost his inheritance, had a sketchy life. David, a murderer and adulterer. Samuel, anointed and a disobedient king, Saul, and the Lord used him to anoint David. All these people, what are their resume? Weakness, failure. And in the midst of it, they were trusting the promises of God. Jesus said that he came to save sinners, not the righteous, to save the wicked. He goes on, I want you to see verse 33 and 34. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Think of Daniel, thrown into the the den of lions. This was man's judgment against Daniel. And God turns that judgment into Daniel's deliverance. The safest place Daniel could be at the moment was with the lions. That was the safest place. No one was going to enter in there. In fact, when his oppressors were thrown in there, they were devoured. So God turned what was his judgment, Daniel's judgment, into deliverance in the very midst of it. It was God's presence and promise that secured him. How about Daniel's three friends? We know that story. Verse 34, they quenched the power of fire. Remember Daniel's three friends? Their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into the fire for refusing to bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. So his oppressors throw them in, and that same fire destroyed the soldiers. Where were they? They were in the safest place. Yes, ironically, under man's judgment. God's presence with them turned it into deliverance. Darius had to say, come out. He could go in. You see, that's the beauty of what God does for us in Christ. Isn't that the cross for us? To come to the cross, we have to say, he's bearing my guilt and shame. I deserve eternal judgment. And so we come and we wrap our arms by faith around him and we identify with him and say, he's bearing my guilt and my shame. That's the worst place to be. We spend our entire lives trying to justify ourselves and escape our guilt and shame. And the cross bids us to come and admit that we deserve judgment. And because Christ bore our guilt, sin and shame and the wrath and justice for us, we find in that place of darkness, in that place where we have said, it's my guilt, my, my judgment that I deserve, we find deliverance. We find hope. We find life in the promises of God in Christ. Those are the themes. That's what he's saying. Well, in verse 2 of chapter 12, look to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Secondly, secondly, and this is going to have to just fly, consider his family training. Consider his family training. And I just want you to see the pictures of training. This is verses 3 through 14. 3 through 14. And the context, is, we draw from verse 1, that we're to lay aside every weight and sin which, which cleans so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the issue is, okay, you've trusted in Christ, but he's not just rescued us and take us to heaven. We're, we're meant to run a race. We're like athletes, training Dealing with sin in our lives, not to earn God's favor. Christ has already done that. But we want to be conformed to his character. So sometimes what happens when we're going through weakness, as we forget, that's God's plan, by the way, of deliverance. And Christ entered that. So we need to look at the promises of God in Christ to be encouraged. That in the midst of weakness, we have everything in Christ. But also sometimes when we're going through suffering, we go, God, I must have done something to deserve God's Anger. 
he's, he's upset at me. He's judging me. And so verses 3 and following are meant to encourage us, no, this is family training. If you belong to him, as a father, he wants to conform you to his character, to prepare you for heaven. Not to gain heaven, that's already been done in Christ, but to prepare you, to conform you, just like a child would be conformed to adulthood. I'm going to have to just pick out some sections for you. But if you look at verse 11 of uh, chapter 12, he says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the word we get from gymnasium from. In fact, he talks about a struggle against sin in verse 4. It's a fight. It's an athletic event, which we're growing in conformity to Christ, but we're being trained. And he trains us through the struggles and weakness. So he reminds us of the promises of Christ in our weakness. But then as his family, he takes those weaknesses and suffering and persecution and trials, and he turns them into an opportunity to train us. To train us to value Christ. To train us to value heaven. And in verse 11, to train us in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. To rest in him. To trust in him. Now, let me just, let's just draw uh, some encouragement from verses 4 through 14. So go back to chapter 12. Look at verse 4. There's a struggle. That's the idea of a competition. All right, what are we competing in? Growing in conformity to Christ. There's an exhortation. Every coach gives an exhortation. In verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's given us the pep talk, the encouragement. What does he want us to, to understand? Don't regard lightly, verse 5, the discipline of the Lord. Cherish it. Well, why should I cherish it? Well, verse 6, because the Lord disciplines, he trains the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. If you are his son, be encouraged. He's training you to grow in his holiness. To grow in resting in him. Look at verse 10. For they disciplined us. He's talking about earthly fathers as a comparison as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's the goal. And we need to remember that. The suffering we go through, the weakness, the oppression, the trials, isn't because he's against us. It's actually the opposite. It's because he's for us. Hebrews 12 reminds us that he doesn't discipline outsiders. He disciplines and trains his family. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. It's, talking, it's this race, this athletic competition. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's encouraging us to encourage one another. Now that we understand, this is, we're in a gym. This life is a gym for Christians, preparing us for heaven. So verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's important because he's saying that if you belong to him, you're going to be conformed to him. That's the mark of your life. That's how he prepares us for heaven. Now, you may read this text, and there are people who do, that read in verse 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And they think that our holiness will get us salvation, will get us into the family. And that is not what he's saying. He's saying you're already in the family in Christ. Be assured, be encouraged. And what does he do with his family? The mark of being in his family is he trains you for holiness and thereby prepares you for heaven to see the Lord. 
Now he's preparing us then for the final conclusion and we're verses uh, 18 through 29. Because if you're thinking that you need to be holy, be trained in holiness to become part of his family, you're approaching God through the works of the law. If you understand that he's already accepted me in Christ and therefore he's training me as a mark of his family, you understand grace. And he gives us two pictures of this. In verse 18 through 21, he gives us a picture of the law of God at Mount Sinai. And notice in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. This idea of a, a building. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. So what may be touched is these pictures of the law. A mountain. You could touch it. You can't because it's on fire. And anyone, verse 20, who touches it would be stoned. They could not endure it. In verse 19, the the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They couldn't see the glory of God. Uh, they, they, They couldn't stand before the glory of God. But it was pictured in something that could be touched, but you couldn't touch it. He's saying these are these are the physical earthly pictures. But there was no way to approach God by trying to get to God on your own. In fact, this picture reminds us that it's we're unable before a terrifying, glorious, exalted God. And if we have the mindset in the picture that he gives is Esau in verses 15 through 17, who had the root of bitterness and failed to obtain the grace of God and tried to sell his birthright, we have that mindset. It's the idea that I have something valuable. In this case, Esau believed he could sell it. He didn't look at God's blessing as a gift of grace. And so the result was a root of bitterness. Lord, I deserve something. You haven't given it to me. That's a person who's standing before Mount Sinai, the law, trying to earn God's favor. And that's the person that thinks of discipline as God's judging me. If I could just do better, try harder, then he'll accept me. And he's saying, we haven't come to that mountain. We've come to Mount Sinai. Or or Mount Zion. I'll always get those two confused. Mount Zion is heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to a place of grace where God has come down to us and accepted us based on his promises. And with that mindset, we can understand the difficulties God uses in our life to train us. Let's look at Mount Zion, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. I love that. How did we come to Mount Zion? Well, when Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he's our representative. When he's seated there in heaven, we are seated with him. God views us in Christ. And that champion who represented us, we've come to the city of the living God, not to the place of, of judgment and torment. We've come to a heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Notice it's a celebration of what God has done. Verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn describes the church who belongs to Christ. He's the the heir, the idea of firstborn. And we are enrolled in heaven. That means our citizenship is there in Christ. To God, the judge of all, the idea is that he is, he's just. And that because Christ has fulfilled the law of God, God's justice is for us. It secures us. We don't need to be afraid that he's going to get rid of us. If his law has been met, he's behind us and for us. He will not compromise his law. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those are believers who are now glorified. 
complete with the Lord in heaven. 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, describing Christ as that mediator. In the new covenant, he has paid for our sins by his blood, cleansed us. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's our idea of touch. The buildings that are passing away will be shaken and removed, but it's those things that are heavenly and eternal that will last. He encourages our hearts. He reminds us that in Christ we've been given eternal things and one day these earthly things are going to melt away and what's going to last is the unseen, the invisible Reminds me of Revelation 21 where heaven, new heavens and new earth and heavenly Jerusalem comes down because God comes down to us to fellowship with us. It's his work. It's his provision. Verse 25, what's our attitude? Like Christ who for the joy set before him because Christ is set before us as this beautiful gift and celebration that we are citizens and belong to. Therefore, be grateful for receiving a kingdom. It's not earned. We don't earn it. Christ does that for us. And it cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what encourages us in weakness? What encouraged the Old Testament saints was the certainty of Christ's perfect work. The certainty that God is going to train us in his family. And then thirdly, if you missed it, is the certainty of his grace. The certainty of his grace. And he gives us the pictures in Mount Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem that can't be destroyed. The earthly will fade away and be shaken by God. In 1994, when I was in going to school, college, January 17th, 4.30, in 20 seconds, an earthquake hit that blew down the 14. I mean, these massive structures were completely destroyed. Uh, for years, we had to drive down the the um, common roads. And it was amazing to see these huge blocks of cement and pillars just destroyed in 20 seconds. I remember being in the dorm room when that earthquake hit and it's just shaking and you're just grab- you don't know what to grab onto. I mean, everything's shaking. I think you're going to die. I remember when they brought us out to that baseball field and had us sit there and you'd see those tremors move out and hit the building. And I thought, this is a much safer place. <laughs> the difference was my location. Now, instead of being in the building, now I was on the field. The earthquake was, it felt like it was moving from around us and then hitting the building the way it was looking. And you'd see that building shake and some had been brought down, not on the campus, but in the Northridge area that were just shredded to pieces. What building are you identifying with? What family are you identifying with? Are you grounded in God's family in Christ or in a building that is shakable and God promises will be removed? It's interesting that Christ is set before us the right hand of God. And the joy that was set before him encouraged him on his road through shame. 
May we draw from the promises of God and the Christ, the Messiah, champion who's been set before us. It's the one seated, fixed, complete, rested, victorious, honored, vindicated, our Lord and champion. Encourage our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. It's so hard in the midst of weakness and suffering to misinterpret things. It just settles our hearts to know that what we need of most value is Christ. And we have that by your promise. And we need to be trained because we're your, your children, your sons and, and daughters. So we're actually, it's a confirming mark in our lives that you are visiting us in the gymnasium of holiness. And Lord, lest we struggle, you remind us that we've come to a mountain that is unshakable, heavenly Jerusalem, secured by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He did it by his blood by his substitutionary life. So we give you praise. We thank you, give you awe and worship. In Christ's name, amen.